This episode is brought to you by the Metasearch Institute. What happens when patients' cases become too complex to solve in a typical 30-minute visit? Well, you've all had those super thick, super deep patient histories nobody's looked at in a long time and gone back through. Well, I'll tell you what happens is those patients bounce around from doc to doc without getting any answers or making any progress. These patients are trapped and lost in a maze. Well, Metasearch is here for those doctors and for those patients. Their motto is, we solve the unsolvable. Their process is rather simple. Dr. Trent Talbot, the founder, assigns a team of medical detectives, typically three MDs and one PhD, to each case. They research the latest breakthroughs and clinical trials, and they elicit the opinions of 10 to 15 world-leading experts per case. They purposefully seek out experts who will come at each case from a different perspective, the Bainesian method. Altogether, they will put in over 250 MD hours for every case. That means 500 times the amount of brain power that a typical doctor can afford to offer. Nobody can do what Metasearch does. Call 832-968-6667. That's 832-968-6667 to be in touch. You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. Last month, my partner Yuri and I broke down an Aetna claims deck that counted 51 steps that it takes about three to five people to submit a clean claim if you're a physician. That's how physicians are paid, is filing lots of clean claims with zero errors, getting pre-authorizations to even submit that clean claim. 51 steps. If you review this show, I'll bribe you and I'll send you the flywheel we created. It's an amazing and shocking game board of what it takes. So it's not cool when a generalist trumps a specialist, and you're a total bureaucrat generalist if you're a doc, and you're supporting a big system that denies care within the standard of care, within customary unusual care. Denials happen every second of every day, however. The scrubber's mission statement seemed to read, deny, defer, delay. Claim scrubbers claim claims before they're submitted to insurance companies, but physician and scrubbers work for the companies and are also known as peer reviewers. They work from home for bigs and they scrub care with the power to deny, delay, defer. Is this legalized accessory to murder sometimes? Dramatic pause. Okay, on most occasions, the peer reviewer is unqualified to make the assessment about the specific services. They aren't true peer reviews for about 55% of all claims because that's the number of claims that are specialist claims. They usually have minimal or incorrect information about the patient and no one has examined or spoken with the patient on the insurance side like the doc has. None of them have a long-term relationship doctors do, especially PCPs. The insurance companies will say the system makes sure that patients are getting the right medication, the right tests, the right treatments at the right time. It doesn't. It's a process focused on quarterly insurance carrier metrics, bonuses, and volume are literally tied to compensation for these scrubbers. 
So as long as scrubbers exist, too many patients will fail to get the medications they need, the treatments, and the tests. I've met two PCPs who scrub claims. One of them is a very good friend. Guess what? They're paid, as I said, by volume and by percentage of denials. And there's little to no quality control over their pre-auth denials. And the appeals, well, they're a joke. There is an appeals process, but nobody goes to the caregiving end of the appeals because it takes enormous amount of time and it's not worth it, especially if you're waiting literally to get a medication that day. So let's call this whole claim system exactly what it is. It's foisted on us. Let's call it a hot furry coat in the middle of July, something nobody likes and is for the birds. Today's guest we spoke with before C19 made landfall in the U.S. We recorded Morris Miller, CEO of Xenex, on January 15th. His company sells robots to disinfect mostly hospital rooms, but also airlines, schools, and other facilities. And they thoroughly bathe the surface of the rooms you stay in and the operating rooms in a broadband spectrum of xenon rays, which destroys these killer pathogens, like C19, like C. diff, and like MERS, which we talked about literally on the last show. So I so welcome you back, Morris Miller, to this show. Thank you, Ron. Nice to uh, talk to you. So it's been nine months. Let me, let me just run through a quick timeline. On January 15th, we spoke and recorded the show. We issued it a week later. On January 11th through 17th, the Chinese Communist Party met in a place called Wuhan, most of us have never heard of. Woo-hoo, who cares? Woo what? Except the Wuhan Health Commission insists that there were no new coronavirus cases, which is a brand new emergence at that time. January 13th, the first coronavirus case was reported in Thailand, the first known case outside of China on the same day that that commission issues the no spreading. And then on January 14th, the World Health Organization announced the Chinese authorities have seen no, quote, no clear evidence of human-to-human transmission of the novel coronavirus. January 15th, patient zero leaves Wuhan on a flight and arrives in the United States the next day carrying, of course, this coronavirus. So that's the day you and I spoke last. Wow. Incredible time. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. I mean, it's it's true. So you are nine months pregnant now with basically as much volume as you can handle, as many robots as you can get out of. Tell us what your journey has been the last nine months, because it's literally nine months ago tomorrow. Well, I, I kind of feel like it's actually almost nine years or 10 years to give birth to uh, this company. Um, the COVID crisis and SARS-CoV-2 really brought this to everybody's attention. And certainly we saw it propel hospitals around the world to make purchase decisions that they had considered before, but hadn't necessarily pulled the trigger. Um, so, you know, our business has dramatically increased. And I, I, I frequently, I'm proud of the team. Uh, Irene Hahn, who works with us, she stated it best when one of the employees was, was talking about the numbers of sales. And she said, you know, normally we would celebrate an increase in sales like this. She goes, but I got to just tell you, I'm humbled to be able to offer a solution to as many people around the world as we can with the right product at the right time in the right place. Morris, there's so much more to this story I want to explore with you. So last time we spoke, I'm going to give you a couple of quotes. One of the things you told us that killer pathogens are killing 300 daily, that's 109,000 a year, and another 6,000 daily are getting infected with these killer pathogens, mostly in hospitals. And there is some small percent of those working with farm animals. But um, those, those numbers are way low now, aren't they? They are. I mean, even if you look at the number of deaths from SARS-CoV-2 or covid 
that's caused by SARS-CoV-2, um, you're, you know, you're standing in the United States about 200,000 since this uh, pandemic started. That's really over the last nine months. That's double the rate of infections that we've normally seen, because normally the hospital-acquired infections, you know, MRSA, Clostridiosis difficile, VRE, Acinetobacter, they kill about 100,000 people a year. So it's already double. Those other pathogens and infections haven't necessarily gone away, except for the fact that the hospitals are a lot less uh, uh, occupied right now. So perhaps there's been some lower level of those other normal infections just because the hospitals have been so preoccupied with COVID-19. I know you're a student of hospital sanitary conditions and sanitary procedures, which includes how you use an autoclave and, and how you process the surgical equipment, how you wash your hands, simple things. Um, those, I'm going to imagine, have been heightened massively by this crisis. Is that uh, a good guess? Yeah, I, I think everybody was aware of the CDC guidelines for infection control. Um, JCO is the organization that audits hospitals to make sure that they're accredited to stay in business as hospitals. Um, that focus on infection prevention is probably 10x what it was before the SARS-CoV-2 crisis began. And uh, that includes, like you referenced early in the show, not only surfaces, but also air and just you know the regular gloves and gowning that uh, physicians and nurses uh, and housekeepers have had to do for, for decades. So you told me on our last show, Morris, that you had 33 peer-reviewed studies that said this technology is pretty cool, that it works. And you, you kind of scratched your head and you said, what do I need, like 34 to, to, to completely sell you? I mean, <clears throat> you're, that, many administrators had to think about it with overwhelming evidence that this robot works. Have you, um, did you run out of robots to uh, ship out? I mean, what happened to your supply chain? Did you figure out how to solve the uh, massive demand that popped up overnight? Uh, yeah, we, we, didn't solve the we didn't solve the demand overnight. Um, first of all, we're now over 40 peer-reviewed studies, even since we talked to you last time. Uh, Mayo Clinic just published another peer-reviewed study. And, and I think one of the things that propelled the company was early in the crisis, when we realized that SARS-CoV-2 was coming over, we went to the Texas Biomedical Research Institute, which is led by Dr. Larry Schlesinger, and just asked him, can you get SARS-CoV-2? We remember the Ebola crisis where we weren't able to claim that we could kill Ebola because we didn't have possession of it. Um, Dr. Schlesinger and his institute, they got a hold of SARS-CoV-2, they brought it into the institute, they grew it, we gave them a robot that we're not going to be able to get back for a year because they wanted to quarantine it, they independently tested it, they published the results. So in early March, we were able to announce with absolute certainty that we kill SARS-CoV-2 in two minutes. So we kill the pathogen that causes COVID-19 on surfaces in two minutes. They also tested it against 3M masks. And while we don't advocate for using it on masks, because we'd rather have the hospitals um, uh, give you know, the housekeepers, the nurses, and the doctors fresh masks, uh, they did prove that it worked on masks as well. No surprise there. I can't imagine it's not gonna work on any surface. No, that, that, that's correct. Well, there might be, there might be some. I haven't found them, but there might be some. And then, and then in terms of production, uh, as the orders increased, uh, we just began increasing our supply chain as fast as we could. And it, and it was interesting to me, the 
core components that make us different, the things that we make, we were able to keep up. It was things that you would never expect. Like we have special clips that make sure that when the, the robot's being banged around the hospital, that it doesn't fall apart, it doesn't rattle, that it's a reliable machine. And uh, globally, when companies saw that the pandemic was coming and they started panicking that they weren't going to be able to get spare parts, they started buying all of those clips. And when you have a product that's approved by Intertech uh, uh, for a purpose, it's literally uh, authorized with all of the components that are in there. So it was these tiny little components that you would never even give a second thought to. It's a you know five cent clip. And yet, if you can't get that clip, then at least in theory, you have to go get it reauthorized. And uh, to the credit of many Americans, we would call, I would call the CEO of companies and say, listen, I understand from the manufacturer that you bought a million of these. We have a life-saving device. I need 100,000. Would you please sell them to me? And sometimes they would sell them to me. And sometimes they'd say, God bless you for what you're doing. And they would just ship them to me. I mean, it's really an incredible company, country that we live in, and, and people would often be surprised at the largesse and generosity of people uh, in the face of a, a, a crisis. But I was consistently proud and impressed with how cooperative everybody was. So I want to keep the discussion on healthcare, but there's two questions I have unrelated. You and I are friends with Roy Terracina, who had a unicorn event like this. He, uh, the Operation Desert Storm happened to his Sterling Bakery, and suddenly the Defense Department said, as many of these nitrogen-packed breads you can make and cakes you can make, we will take. So we quadrupled his factory size, bought all the land, parking around him, quadrupled his labor, you know, went to three shifts, and he just pumped out as much bread as he could. And that sort of happened to you. Did Have you, um, have you ever experienced something of this dramatic, this short-term of growth? You know, I know uh, you've been involved, of course, with Rackspace, but it wasn't even like this, was it? No, th this was uh, this was becoming like Rackspace year seven, you know, overnight. Um, and um, I'd, I'd consistently told the team, I said, it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. And when you look at when we founded the company and when this hit, it was like 10 years. And literally, it was like becoming an overnight success. And uh, I, I have to credit the team, you know, under Roger Mack's leadership, manufacturing came in, they ran multiple shifts, they worked day and night, they worked weekends for not like a week at a time or two weeks, but for months at a time to uh, produce as many robots as they could to meet the demand. It, it, would, it would make any leader of any company proud. Your, my second business question is 3D. We interviewed a, a gravel bike manufacturer, the best in the world in Italy, who's an EO where you and I met. And he um, overnight had to start 3D printing parts for his bicycles because um, they couldn't get supply chain anymore from India and China and Israel. So did you have to do the same thing? Have you accelerated your 3D printing plans yourself so that you don't have to rely on outside sources? We, we didn't produce, uh, we didn't use 3D printers to produce the actual parts for the robot. We did use 3D printers to produce prototypes of alternative uh, materials. And then we had to ship those out to metal manufacturers or to uh, plastics manufacturers to get them made. So it definitely sped up the uh, redesign process that allowed us to meet demand um, or to attempt to uh, continue to meet demand. Um, so 3D is not in the robot itself, but it absolutely sped up product development. So how long does it take to produce a robot? And then how long does it take now, nine months later? Uh, it's really not that much different. I mean, if you, 
if you have everything in house, if you have all of the parts lined up, you know, somewhere between eight hours and 16 hours to put it all together, because you're doing the final assembly, that doesn't include the, the, you know, the cabling assemblies, it doesn't include, you know, producing lamps and all of the other things that we make. So all told, it's hundreds and hundreds of hours, but the actual assembly time, the final assembly hasn't changed that much, other than I think the um, supply chain innovations that we did actually did speed up um, how the, the assembly line was organized. Um, there, there's some uh, uh, famous car manufacturers that you've probably heard of that are experts in um, assembly and in uh, uh, designing uh, assembly lines. And they were very gracious and generous with their time and counsel to come in and help us. Again, it's just an example of how when there's a crisis, Americans just pull together to make things happen, even if they're uh, just helping out a neighbor. Okay, so back to Kerrigan. Um, when we look at the reasons you were told no, they obviously didn't have budget for it or they just didn't have time to think about it. It wasn't a priority, of course. Neither of those are an issue now because the CARES Act gave a Marshall Plan to the hospitals of $175 billion. And many of them didn't need it. We've seen public company reportings for the last two quarters now, coming up on three. And they were profitable during this crisis because they made up the difference with other services, particularly outpatient and uh, um, outside services that aren't in the hospital. But what I'm, what I'm seeing is they can no longer tell you that we don't have budget for this when they were just awarded tens of millions of dollars uh, for the big systems. Did, have, you, have you even gotten that issue coming up at all? I, I still hear it from certain hospitals for sure. Um, you know, the, the hospitals that were going to buy, uh, that wanted to buy, I think the um, dollars that they got, the CARES Act dollars, made it easier for them to make the decision to just push forward and kind of get it going. And the hospitals that were recalcitrant and that used economics as a defense mechanism, uh, I, I think that they continue to do that. Okay, so you're a private company. I don't want to ask you a question related to your volume, but you are doing mostly medical related volume. How much of your volume roughly now is attributed to say casinos and the leisure industry, airlines, et cetera? Uh, you know, our base has grown. So, you know, on our old base, it would have been 50%. On our new base, it's in the, you know, 10%-ish range. Um, I don't know if you saw, we, you know, the Carolina Panthers are now a team. I think you'll see some other um, professional sports teams that are going to be using the robots. We know that we're out doing demos um, since the Panthers announcement. Similarly, you know, we got the we started with the Westin Hotel in Houston, then we got the Waldorf Astoria, and then we got the Beverly Hills Hilton. So we're seeing adoption in hotels. The Paramount Miami World Center is the kind of number one luxury apartment complex in Miami. So we're seeing adoption in luxury high rises. So all of these little niches keep expanding and growing and once somebody heard that we just i can't say which one but we just sold an entire school system because um, they really wanted to get their kids back in school and they have a very uh, aggressive disinfection regimen that they're following to make sure that they can have kids in classes well when, when life was a little less hectic you told us an oklahoma story about a school system that had a virus that uh, kept everybody out of school and you came in with the robots and cleaned all the surfaces and but a bing but a boom virus over absolutely yeah great story um so morris this is quite a ride you've been on um and i understand when you say when your employee says that it's been a bittersweet ride 
but um, does this change anything about the way you grow your company? Is this, are you going to lower your prices? Are you going to start going after volume now? I mean, what is, what is your game plan going forward for Zenex? So, so one of the uh, interesting things that the team came to me with during the crisis is uh, even, so sometimes there were places that would, you know, lend us parts or give us parts or sell us parts. But there was other things like, uh, I remember there was a fan in the, the robot that we use. And normally it might cost us $35. And all of a sudden we were paying $175. And this happened across multiple, multiple components. And the team came to me and I talked to them about, you know, what are we going to do on pricing? And I was really proud because they said, look, the one thing we're not going to do is raise prices. So even in the face of a pandemic and a shortage, we never raised prices, even when our cost of goods sold dramatically increased. So I thought that that was good. In terms of going after the markets, we're still focused on healthcare. That's where people are getting sick. That's where they're dying, at least where they can track it. So we're still focused on healthcare. We're going after all those hospitals, both in, both in the U.S. And now about 30% of our business is outside the U.S. So we're going outside the U.S. And then all of the other markets we're looking at and we're working with sort of uh, uh, leading thinkers who are adopters to expand their adoption like Waldorf Astoria um, or uh, uh, collegiate sports and other places to see can we get them to make this ubiquitous so that they can protect their students, protect their athletes, and really create a healthier community, and most importantly, get people back to work. So I can't wait to see these robots get into the primary care market. Is there, do you envision a secondary market where somebody gets a used robot to use in primary care for a lesser cost, or maybe for a leased cost, or rental rental cost? Is that a something that'll develop now that you have so much volume out there? I think the, the way that we've approached that is we rolled out a new service called Strikeforce. Um, so everybody's, or not, I don't know if everybody, but many people know about software as a service. We call this disinfection as a service or zapping as a service. And uh, we have been going out to restaurants, car dealerships, um, all sorts of uh, businesses. Really, we've seen a lot of polling, Houston, San Antonio, Austin, Dallas, for businesses that can't afford a robot, but they can afford you know, $400 to have somebody come out and really disinfect spaces. Um, we've gotten it to the point where we can disinfect somewhere between 5,000 and 7,000 square feet per hour per robot by optimizing it because we're training our own people. But it's really disinfection as a service where we can go out and meet the needs of businesses or institutions. It started, there was a nursing home where they kept on having deaths and they kept on having infections. They needed a solution. That's where we began. Um, just outside of uh, Houston, and it's expanded from there. So that business is growing fast on its own. That's really the way that we're addressing secondary uh, markets that need the service but can't afford a robot. You know, my son-in-law's in the antimicrobial business. They do um, building maintenance, and so they spray down rooms for the same kind of clients you're talking about. But they're spraying down the rooms in high-traffic areas, and you don't know how reliable it is. It's kind of like the same thing with the made services in the hospitals. You don't know how reliable and they're doing their best job they can, but they're in a hurry. Um, but they charge about the same amount for the square footage. So I would much rather have a bathed ray of light than have somebody spraying a surface possibly unevenly um, for the same price. Yeah, the, the, the lead maintenance person janitor at the school system was talking to me and he said, look, the way we always look at it, he goes, we've been pretty good at getting rid of the dirt that we can see. He says, you're getting rid of all the pathogens that we can't see. And I think that's, 
That's really the role that we've always served in the hospital. We've never said you're not going to clean it. So even using an electrostatic sprayer, that's fine. Do that first if you want to, and then bring in Xenex that's not gonna miss the, the spaces that chemistry will miss. And between those two, we can really solve a problem. Well, I'm sorry that you had to grow during a crisis, but I understand how joyful it is to see the adoption rate because this is really gonna move the dial over the long term for MERS and C. diff. Um, we're gonna have Janine Thomas on our show in a few days, and I think you know her. She's with the MRSA Survivors Network. Yes. Um, I, it seems to me that now that you're gonna have this high adoption, you're going to be able to drive down MRSA and C. diff and the other things we talked about on the last show that are really more of a long-term chronic problem than even a coronavirus, because this will come and go. It'll, the strain will de define itself by disintegrating to the mean. It'll get lighter and lighter and less or less of a burden to the point where it's not affecting anybody before maybe even the, uh, the, the uh, vaccinations come out. So the longer term issue, however, are these resistant, these uh, penicillin, methicillin resistant, um, I guess we have viruses and we have spores. So that is really the long term effect of this pandemic for your business is that the rooms are all going to be more sanitized on a much larger scale now for these other conditions. Yeah, it, it, we, we saw this in Italy where they bought hundreds of machines and we're already working with our partners over there to redeploy them to go after the pathogens, like you just said, you know, Clostridiosis difficile, uh, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, vancomycin-resistant enterococci, all of the pathogens that have normally been a threat, they're now going after. And uh, the, the blessing in disguise hopefully will be that three years from now, they'll say, wow, we used to have a hospital-acquired infection problem. Now we're killing the pathogens that would have otherwise made our citizens sick, and that's not happening anymore. And hopefully the hand washing is getting more routine. Well, Morris, it's always great to catch up with you. What a ride, man, as I said earlier, and what an amazing story you have to tell. The last one was great. The timing was incredibly amazing, and now here we are you know, on the other side of this thing, hopefully, with uh, a happy story and a happy ending for the long term for everybody that goes to hospitals. Thank you, Ron. I really, I really appreciate it. Always good to talk to you. Yeah. And is there any message, um, if you could fly a banner overhead, you got this last time, that you would send out to all those listening, what would your message be? It would be, I really want them to follow the CDC guidelines. I want them to socially distance. I want them to wear their masks. I want them to wash their hands. Don't touch your eyes. Uh, really, if you'll, if everybody would follow those simple rules, I, I think you'll see a drop in the uh, passage of this particular pathogen, and hopefully we can uh, see it die off and get America back to work. So I really, I want them to follow that, and then in the meantime, we'll do everything we can to disinfect surfaces wherever they're going, and hopefully we can have a safer and healthier society. That's awesome, Morris. Before we sign up, how do folks reach you or find Xenex to uh, engage for one of these machines? Uh, if they want to email me, it's Morris, M-O-R-R-I-S dot Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R at Xenex, X-E-N-E-X dot com. And uh, anybody that wants to call myself can call myself 210-273-6768. I'm happy to discuss or help in any way I can. Thank you, Morris, for being on the show. We look forward to talking to you again real soon. Likewise. Thanks, Ron. Okay. Bye-bye. So welcome to Just a Hospital Minute. We are adding these segments for one minute at the end of every show to tell you some of the games that hospitals play. Soft medical admission is what they call patients that are admitted to pad revenues. 80% of 
CEOs at one hospital system made their bonus last year at the end of the quarter four. So they'll admit abnormal heart reads and arrhythmias that aren't necessarily admitted normally. They'll do what's called aggressive admissions at the end of the quarter to make bonus. One system paid huge fines to CMS in 2014 for this very practice called soft medical admissions. So this is just another hospital minute. Thanks again to our sponsor, the MediSearch Institute. I want to read you a note a CEO friend of mine sent me who used them for a rare childhood disease her daughter had. Dr. Talbot's research was thorough. He provided clear paths of treatment, and he gave me access to the best physicians. I'm so grateful for his work. That's the MediSearch Institute. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.